Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and even as that holiday season rapidly approaches, we are continuing to slave away. Slave, I tells you, to provide you with great podcasting content. And uh, actually, others at Showtime are working away to provide us with the information that helps us create podcasting content. Um, and... A little bit of a, this is our little uh, holiday present to you here, a little bit of insider information. Um, part of the reason that, that Eric and I, or Barry Tompkins, or Morrow, or any of the other people on the broadcast are frequently able to come up with little informational nuggets about fighters and fights and venues and whatnot on Showtime broadcasts and podcasts is because Steve Farhood produces a packet of stats and notes for each fight card for, for everybody. And it's always interesting stuff. Um, but for next week's Showtime Championship boxing card in Atlanta, which we'll talk about in greater length, he provided what might be the most improbable piece of info that he's ever provided for any fighter on any card, which is that Lionel Thompson, who faces Jose Skategi in the opener of the triple header, watches the Denzel Washington movie The Equalizer every single night. <laughs> every single night. Night. Not once a month, not once a year, not whenever he has the chance, every single night. Eric, I don't know about you, but there is no movie that I have ever watched every <laughs> single night. <laughs> I, I, I would hope not. That is uh, quite the time commitment. Uh, <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah, th this is this is easily the weirdest little nugget I've seen in one of these pre-fight Showtime notes packages, and th and there was something about it costing him a relationship at one point, which <laughs> I can see that. Go yeah. figure. Yeah. Um, for the record, I've never seen The Equalizer. Uh, I know nothing about it. Uh, I remember an '80s TV show That's with right. some uh, old white guy that was called yep. The Equalizer. I guess right. uh, you're familiar with that as well. Okay. Yeah, it was a British show. Actually. Oh, okay. There you go. Um, yeah, I have no idea if the Denzel movie is based on the same IP at all, but... Uh... I think so. Oh, I okay. I think so. All right, there we go. I'm learning things. But, you know, Lionel Thompson knows what he likes. Good for him. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I have. there's no movie that I have watched every night. Um, I was thinking about, you know, what movie have I watched the most over the course of, of my lifetime? Have I seen the most times from start to finish? Um, I'm going to blow you away with my highbrow tastes here. Uh, but for me, that movie is Billy Madison. Uh, <laughs> I, I would guess I've seen it all the way through about 50 times. Um, my, my junior year of college, we watched it like two or three times a week. Uh, and we were always very clean and sober when watching it, of course. <laughs> of um, course. But uh, it, it's a true classic. Still far and away Adam Sandler's funniest movie. I will accept no arguments to the contrary on that. Uh, how about you? What, what is the movie that you've watched the most times? Um, so I had to have a think about this. And then I realized, actually... I take you a highbrow, sir, and I raise you. <laughs> Uh-oh. That actually is probably um, any number of the movie, the sort of traditional movies that I and friends will watch at this particular time of year, right? So I don't know if Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown, or it's a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving count, hmm. but if they do, it's probably that. But failing that, it's actually, it's probably like, could be It's a Wonderful Life. I watch that every year. Hmm. All right, Might you ready? You re ready to have your socks uh, knocked off? I have okay. never seen It's a Wonderful Life. <gasps> yeah, <Yes. laughs> that was quite a gasp. Wow. It was. 
Yeah. Nope. Nope. It was. But Never failing that, I actually realized that then the other movies that I've probably seen the most very much in the vein of Charlie Brown Christmas specials and It's a Wonderful Life are probably either Apocalypse Now mm. or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I think it's actually probably Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Wow. And, you know, that was a movie because I would watch it. I would have already watched it a bunch of times when I was a kid, even before watching it over and over and over again. And, mm. you know, there's nothing quite like being invited to dinner and then just, you know, creating devil's tower out of the mashed potatoes and <laughs> I, wondering I, whether you ever get invited back. I get the reference, but uh, mostly because uh, Weird Al recreated it in UHF. I have never seen Close Encounters, and I've never even seen Apocalypse Now. So all of these movies, uh, I know, I, I have some homework to do over the holidays, I guess. Okay, well, you know what? I've never seen Billy Madison. All right, then uh, <laughs> your mission it will take you much less time to complete than mine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but we both uh, we both know our assignments now. <laughs> okay, very well. Boy, holidays just really kicked into gear. All right. <laughs> um, this week on the show, as mentioned, we have a big Showtime triple header to preview. It's the last major show of 2019, live from Atlanta on Saturday night, and it's headlined by burgeoning superstar Javante Davis against veteran Yuriorkis Gamboa. We'll be joined by a special guest for part of that preview, as once again, by popular demand, Stephen Breadman Edwards will join us to talk about the matchups. And how he's thinking about betting those fights. So Eric and I will also make our own predictions for this, the final fight card, in determining who wins our year-long picks competition, in which I have Eric exactly where I want him. Uh, we will also cover all the latest news, including uh, some interesting bouts added to the 2020 schedule. But uh, let's start with this past weekend's action, shall we? Yep. Um, and uh, the unofficial sort of main event of the weekend and the official main event of what actually turned out to be a great card on Fox uh, was Jamel Charlo, Tony Harrison too. It was another close, entertaining, well-fought fight. These two guys just real, really close together when they get together. Uh, Charlo scored a knockdown in the second round. Harrison recovered quickly, was getting a lot of good work done. Uh, through 10 rounds, though, two judges had Charlo ahead 96-93. Not too sure about that. And the third had Harrison in front 95-94. But... The scorecards became immaterial in round 11. The fighters exchanged left hooks. Charlo's wobbled Harrison, sent him down. Charlo pinned him on the rope, seemed about to force a stoppage, but Harrison fell into the ropes. The referee, Jack Reese, called it a knockdown. Charlo's on the other side of the ring, celebrating as if the fight was over, but it wasn't quite yet, but it soon was when Charlo flurried along the ropes again, and this time Reese did step in to a lot of protest from Harrison. Um, so as always... Whenever a fighter is stopped on his feet, whatever the circumstances, <laughs> we must bring out the patented Raskin Sadist-O-Meter <laughs> and fire it up. So I have to ask, what did you think of Jack Reese's stoppage here? Uh, I thought it was poorly timed. Um, yeah. I don't think it really matters much in the end, but I, I thought his timing was bad. When Charlo had Harrison up against the ropes after the first knockdown of the 11th, uh, there was a moment where he snapped his head back. Uh, it almost looked like Felix Trinidad and Yuri Boy Campos mm. or, the, or the end of Corrales Castillo would have been a perfect time for Reese to stop it. And I think he was going to, but Harrison fell into like the bottom rope and Reese seemed to change his plan on the fly and call a knockdown, which obviously confused Charlo. Uh, I seemed to me that he sensed I, i'm sort of reading multiple people's minds here right um but uh, so i could be wrong but it seemed to me like he sensed reese's original plan uh and, and thought that the fight was over uh that would have been a, a good time to stop it and i don't think anyone could have complained 
or, you know, maybe even could have stopped it uh, when he finished giving Harrison that count with Harrison not seeming totally steady on his legs. Uh, But the moment at which Reese did jump in wasn't great. Harrison was mostly avoiding the punches, seemed to have his wits about him. If you can push the ref off in anger, you're probably not totally out of it at that moment. Um, But that said, I don't think it mattered. Uh, Charlo was, by that point, way ahead with the two knockdowns, and he was in total control. And Harrison hadn't shown in the course of their two fights that he has the power to hurt Charlo and score a miracle knockout. So bottom line, the right guy won. Uh, Harrison fought well through 10 rounds. I had him up by a point. Uh, I was impressed with his calm whenever Charlo got spazzy. Uh, I, I was, I really was unimpressed with Charlo when he got real aggressive. He was, he was so wild. I don't see that approach working against, uh, too many top opponents. Um, but this, this was a good, fun fight. Harrison's stock doesn't go down at all in defeat, in my opinion, and Charlo, remains in the conversation for maybe the best fighter at 154 pounds. Uh, And speaking of which, there are other attractive opportunities for him at 154 after this. Uh, We will, of course, ask Breadman in a few minutes about Charlo facing his guy, Julian Williams. But let me get your take first, Kieran. Uh, Based on what we saw from Charlo in this Harrison rematch, any sense of who you would favor there? And do you have any interest in a Charlo-Harrison rubber match, which uh, the fighters were talking about a bit afterwards? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you, you raised a couple of points there that we actually talked about a little bit when we were previewing this, which is the sense that, you know, Charlo's kind of like, you know, an, an emotional guy, a heart and a sleeve kind of guy outside of the ring. And he carries that into the ring a little bit. And and he as a consequence he does seem to get like he's so desperate for a knockout sometimes that he does get you know a little wild when he's pushing forward aggressively and you know so ultimately obviously that worked for him but it also sort of helped i think make those both of those fights with harrison perhaps closer than anyone ever you know closer than maybe we expected them to be given that as we also discussed last week it feels as if there's a sort of ceiling gap between Charlo and, and Harrison, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, there is that styles make fights element between them, because Charlo and Harrison, that is. And as you said, like Harrison, he's a pretty calm fighter. At, at times, maybe a bit too calm for his own good on Saturday night. Um, you know, and he's, he's like, he fires those straight punches who could take advantage of a guy who's, who's throwing those looping, looping shots. Look, if we didn't already know that Charlo... Uh, is now facing J Rock, assuming Williams wins in in January. In January, then I'd absolutely uh, say, you know, let's let's go straight to that rubber match because those two guys just seem to be two guys who, you know, each of their strengths sort of exploits the other one's weaknesses a little bit. But um, but instead, yeah, no, look, let's again, assuming Williams uh, wins in January, let's let's roll on J Rock. Um, but I would say that as of right now, depending on what we see from Julian in January. Based on the Williams that we saw against Jarrett Hurd, the Charlo that we've seen a couple of fights against Harrison, I just kind of feel that Williams just probably right now I'd probably make him the favorite Williams because I feel like he's got a bit more poise, a bit few more tools. That Charlo's just that he's just I know it, it's worked for him so far, but but I just feel like that sort of he goes straight from first gear to eighth and with his with his offense and i just don't know that that's going to continue to work for him against the other very best ones in the 154 pound division so all right and you're not just saying that because of the likelihood of Breadman listening back to the whole podcast and uh, and and hearing you uh, pick his fighter well no and and even when 
J-Rock gets knocked down six times in the first round after weighing in at 178 pounds for a 154-pound contest, I'm still going to praise him. <laughs> okay. And just say the scales are obviously off. You know, the gravity was was suspect. Right. All, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're fine. Um, uh, before <laughs> we talk about the, the undercard, um, which, as we mentioned, the whole card was pretty good. We should note, actually, that prior to the main event, uh, Brian Kenny interviewed Errol Spence during the Fox broadcast. And that's the first time we've seen Spence since his car accident. Um, you know, he addressed, as we mentioned, I think, again last week, uh, Bob Arum had been making mischief and saying that he'd heard that Spence was much more badly hurt than had been officially the case and that he'd be out for a while. But nope, Spence says, no, he's, he's fine. He, had, he did indeed have as very few injuries as was reported, and he expects to be fighting again in May or June. Uh, was there, in your mind, anything to take away from, from that interview? It was mostly just good to see him out in front of the camera looking reasonably healthy. Um, I saw some scarring on his face. His right eye seemed very watery. Uh, I have no idea if that had anything to do with the accident. Mm. Um, his speech was a little, I, I don't want to say slurred, but um, just a tiny bit fuzzy. But I don't mm. know if that's his Texas drawl or uh, him having teeth replaced. Uh, you know, that that can certainly affect your speech a little bit or, or anything else. Uh, but all in all, he certainly looks like a guy who should be able to fight again, uh, as his team has insisted all along will be the case. Uh, he said he'll return in, in May or June. Then he said summer, and Brian Kenny called him on that, said, you know, which is it, spring or summer? Uh, and then he sort of just said in 2020 at one point. Uh, I don't know if we want to read anything into Spence contradicting himself ever so slightly during a live TV interview. Um, right. But, yeah, I I, I guess he will return in somewhere around six months i would assume not against an a-level opponent and we'll just see how he looks and whether he appears diminished in any way there was nothing from looking at his face in this interview that would lead me to believe he should be diminished uh, and and of right. course that's exactly how a doctor diagnoses things by looking at a guy's face in a tv interview so <laughs> precisely exactly uh, well done doogie um <laughs> Uh, moving along to that undercard of Charlie Harrison, as we mentioned, there's some good stuff on there. Uh, three fights in particular, I think, that are really worth talking about. Uh, all of the knockouts, uh, two of them upsets. Uh, on the Fox Sports 1 portion of the undercard, uh, veteran Oscar Escandon shocked uh, 23-0 Jack Tapura of the Philippines with a left hook to the uh, liver midway through the very first round. Um, but perhaps more shocking was the result of the scheduled eight-rounder between 2016 U.S. Olympian Carlos Balderas and Rene Teles-Huron, who we watched suffer his only pro defeat on Showbox against uh, Michel Rivera back in June. Um, boy, oh boy. This fight between Huron and Balderas, that, it was a war. And boy, first of all, there was... I think even the Raskin Sadistamida would have been okay had the fight... Well, I guess we'll find <laughs> out. Had the fight been stopped in round three, but it was not... Uh, then Huron finished the job at the end of round six, and I might arguably make the case that the round three stoppage would have been better than the round six stoppage. But anyway, again, we'll we'll fire up the we'll fire up the the equipment there. Um, <laughs> uh, but it would be reasonable to come away from that thinking that that was about as wild it was going to get on this undercard. But then uh, undefeated heavyweight FAO Jaguar, who I love to watch, uh, came out for what looked on paper an easy win against Ayogo Kaladze, and then we got another slugfest. A Jaguar hurting Kaladze. Badly in the third, but when he moved in to finish, uh, Kladze dropping him. Um, but the upset wasn't to be in this one. Uh, Ajagba forcing a corner stoppage in the fifth. Yeah, that 
that whole sequence there where <laughs> where Jugbear had him like staggering around and still yeah. somehow managed to get knocked down. That was something. Um, all right. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Feel free to take a breath and give me your take on any or all of that. All right. Deep breath. And <sighs> okay. Uh, taking them in chronological order, uh, not much to say about Eskandone Tapora other than, wow, what a perfect body shot. Yeah. Uh, or to quote uh, Oscar De La Hoya's Twitter from years ago, what a beauty, hashtag body. Uh, I have plenty to <laughs> say. Do you remember that tweet? No. Yeah, it went, went a little viral. I can't remember the fight, but what a beauty, hashtag body. Yes. Um, oh, that's good. Uh, <laughs> I have plenty to say about uh, Hero and Baldaris. Uh, you know that I can be sadistic about stoppages. Uh, I tend to lean a certain direction on letting fights continue. The way Ray Corona handled the end of the third round was as bad a refereeing decision as I've ever seen. And it looked to me like he was bending over backward to save the Olympic yeah. prospects undefeated record. And if so, that's awful. He he could have screwed Hiron out of a deserved win. And he made a probably concussed Balderas take three extra rounds yeah. of punishment. And even if that didn't enter into Corona's thinking at all, just on the facts of what we saw, he really screwed this up. Balderas went down hard. His head hit the canvas. Some refs might have stopped it right there. I'm glad Corona didn't. Uh, you know, by all means, give the kid his count of 10 to get up. He did just barely beat the count. Corona asked him to walk to him, and Balderas stumbles backward, needing yeah. the ropes and the corner pad to hold him up. That is an automatic stoppage. You say, walk to me, and the fighter wobbles in the exact opposite direction from where you just told him to walk. How do you not stop that fight? Um, we got three more exciting rounds out of it as fans, but was it worth it? I don't know. Thankfully, Hiron came through with the knockout, so he didn't get screwed out of a win. But, man, that, that ending to the third round had me irate. Uh, yeah. and, then, and then in the very next fight, uh, Jagba had Kaladze so badly staggered in that round three uh, that I thought the ref was going to step in. He didn't, and Ajagba got dropped. Uh, so uh, maybe makes a case for not always stopping it, but still, uh, that was a, a late entrant in the round of the year discussion, I'd say, that, that third round. Um, I think we need to slow down on the Ajagba excitement a little, mm. maybe. He has some tools, good raw power, uh, but they would be smart not to rush him based on how close he came to disaster here. Yeah. Uh, we now move on to the crow-eating portion of our fight recaps. Uh, I ate some crow last week. Kieran has to eat some this week. Although, it's not a feast of crow. Maybe just a side dish of crow, because we got some things right. Uh, but you were very insistent for weeks that you did not think Daniel Jacobs versus Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. would happen. And I didn't disagree with you one bit, so uh, I can nibble some crow, too. Uh, well, the fight <laughs> happened uh, in Phoenix on Friday night, despite the legal hurdles required to get there. That said, we were dubious about Chavez making 168 pounds, and what do you know, he hardly tried, coming in at 172.7 and paying Jacobs a big chunk of his purse for the fight to go on. He also came in with a head of blonde hair, uh, looking quite a bit like a Bond villain, I thought. Um, in the fight, Chavez looked dangerous for a couple of rounds, but packed it in as soon as he started running out of gas and Jacobs started landing big shots, uh, surrendering after round five with a broken nose much to the frustration and dismay and perhaps embarrassment of his dad at ringside. The fans pelted Chavez and everyone else within range with trash, which, if it happened in Philly, the mainstream media would be reminding us about it for generations, but it was Phoenix, so it'll be quickly forgotten. Uh, lots to digest here. Uh, 
And that was not a, a pun uh, with regard to eating of crow uh, using digest. Uh, Kieran, how much crow are you planning to eat? Uh, uh, is this finally the end of the big opportunities for Chavez? And anything to take away from the performance of Daniel Jacobs here at Super Middleweight? If in Philly, they would have picked up Santa Claus and thrown him at Chavez. That's the big difference. <laughs> um, oh, that Santa Claus um, thing. We can't get out from under it. That's never going away. But it kind of makes your point, but it's never going away. Um, how much crow? Uh, not so very much in the grand scheme. I mean, because for exactly the reasons that you sort of outlined at the top of this year, I did not see the fight happening. There's no question about that. I didn't see any way that it was going to happen. Um, I mean, obviously, that last-minute court appeal was the game changer in terms in terms of ensuring that that it got the go ahead from Chavez's team. Um, what all this is going to end up meaning for Eddie Hearn's license in Nevada remains to be seen. Mm. I really thought that he would blink there and figure it's not worth it. Um, he apparently has decided that it is. Whether whether he still feels that, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, look, if you are going, as you and I basically talked about, if you are going to risk. Your promotional license in Las Vegas, of all places, why on earth would you do it for Julio Cesar Chavez Jr.? And and Chavez went ahead and proved exactly why, not just us, but just about, I think, anybody else um, was shaking their heads about all of this. Yeah. Um, man, I really hate to criticize price fighters. I, I really, it's, you know, but... What a horribly entitled, self-regarding excuse for a boxer Chavez is. Um, mm. Without that name, he would have been jettisoned by the industry a long time ago, and he absolutely should be now. Um, yes, there were headbutts, apparently, in the fight. I, I, I can't say that I noticed a lot. I saw him complaining, and Danny did apologize afterward. Um, and non-boxers, again, should never dismiss like how much that hurts. Right. Um, and yes, and apparently there was a legit broken nose that required surgery. And again, not to dismiss what that must be like. That's what boxers go through, that kind of stuff. And that's why they're professional boxers and we're quasi-professional podcasters. <laughs> and, you know, it's why they're kind of superhuman. But look, the fact that Chavez showed up, as you mentioned, grossly above weight shows all you need to know about this. Um, he doesn't need to fight for money. Um, he wants to fight for adulation. He wants to be handed things. He wants to be praised, but he doesn't want to make the necessary effort or to show the necessary respect to be a top boxer. And, and of course, as we've all discussed, he's got previous. Um, in his first fight with Brian Vera, he missed weight so badly that Vera was persuaded to agree to move the contest up a pair of weight divisions um, in order for it to, to go ahead. He put in a pitiful non-effort for 11 of 12 rounds against Sergio Martinez, 12 of 12 against Canelo Alvarez. He quit against Andre Fonfara. He quit against Jacobs. Um, he had two rounds in on Friday night where he was somewhat effective, not least because he was a freaking cruiserweight. And, but as soon as Jacobs got in his groove and Chavez's complete lack of conditioning took its hold, it, he backed out. And... On one level, I almost don't blame Chavez so much as I do these promoters who continue to enable him. He did not deserve that opportunity. He just didn't. He was offered $2 million for this fight, even though he only wound up with $1 million. Um, I mean, that buys a lot of breakfast cereal and marijuana. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's right. a lot. Um, so I don't know. As for Jacobs, first of all, good for him, actually, for going through with the fight. Uh, my understanding was that... Um, 
Chavez missed weight so badly that it triggered one of the contract clauses that would have enabled Jacobs without any kind of penalty to say, nope, I'm fighting Gabe Rosado instead. But he said he wanted to test himself against, you know, a legit super middleweight, which he didn't. He ended up testing himself against a non-legit cruiserweight, but still. Um, and it took him those couple of rounds, I think, as much as anything to, to probably perhaps to deal with the size because Chavez was going for it for a couple of rounds. Perhaps he'd already decided he was only going to go for it for a few rounds. And so he just put all his effort into those first two and see what would happen. Um, but starting in that third, arguably even in the second, Jacobs, I thought, was in control, firing that jab very nicely. Um, you know, it showed that I think that all the skills you know, that made him such a strong middleweight appear to still be there. Uh, I think he'll be a strong super middleweight contender. Um, and he immediately makes himself one of the bigger and better names in the mix at the top of that division, I think. Um, but I would, before he's up against uh, uh, Callum Smith or, or that, like I wouldn't mind actually see him at 168 against an actual real boxer who approaches this sport like a real profession and actually put some real effort into it. But. Uh, I, I love it when uh, fired up angry Kieran comes out. It doesn't happen too often, but uh, it doesn't. It doesn't. But I, I enjoy it when it does. But yeah, we're pe- we're taking aim at people this week. Ray Corona, I got my sights on you. Kieran's firing shots at uh, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. I tell we're feisty you. this week. I t- that's right. I tell you, finishing off the year almost with a with a bang or something. Uh, one other notable fight on that card. Um, an excellent action fight uh, for a flyweight belt between Julio Cesar Martinez and Christopher Rosales. Uh, Martinez winning by stoppage in the ninth. Um, not a lot to say about it, I think, and other than the fact it was a really fun watch. Uh, and eventually sort of did become a bit one-sided in Martinez's favor uh, on a separate card on Saturday in London. Your first pick in our Rising Stars draft, Daniel Dubois, knocked out Kiyotaro Fujimoto in the second round with a vicious right hand. It was kind of the mismatch we expected it to be, actually. So any comment there? Not much. Uh, Dubois dropped Fujimoto with a well-timed jab first, uh, and then came the knockout blow. It was a great KO, uh, and it won me my bet on the fight going under two and a half rounds, so I'm very rich now. Thank you, Daniel Dubois. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Frank Warren needs to step him up a little. Uh, you know, I was just saying a few minutes ago that uh, F.A. Jagba shouldn't be rushed. Well, Dubois needs to be, you know, maybe not yeah. rushed, but, but tested. Tested, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Opponents like this do nothing for him at this point. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, and the last fight of note on Wednesday in Australia, Jeff Horn got his revenge on Michael Zarafa, and my disinterested grunting last week was uh, proven somewhat unwarranted, uh, as this was apparently a very good fight. Uh, I say apparently because I haven't had time to watch the whole thing, but I did see the dramatic ninth round in which Horn was badly hurt and cut, and then knocked Zarafa down twice, which propelled him to a majority decision win after 10 rounds, although two of the cards were so wide that... I guess Horn was going to win no matter what, as long as he finished on his feet. Kieran, did you have a chance to watch any of this? And uh, if so, anything to say about it? Uh, and if not, want to make some stuff up? Well, I was completely shocked when Fan Kangaroo descended into the ring. I certainly didn't expect <laughs> that to happen, to say nothing of where and ringside that dingo ate that baby um I <laughs> maybe, maybe i need to watch this thing after all <laughs> hell yeah uh look I'm, I'm kidding uh i like yourself i didn't see the whole fight but i did see some highlights including that fantastic ninth round or as fox sports australia called it on their youtube channel quote the bloody brilliant ninth round that will go down in history um i don't know about that but it will certainly ought to go down on round of the year finalist lists yeah. um, um, for sure. Um, and you know what? I'm going to circle back to this freaking point again here. This is why I get pissed off at Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., right? It's, it's really hard not to watch that fight. Blood everywhere. Two really exhausted fighters at the 
absolute limit of their physical endurance, giving absolutely everything. And it's just hard not for me to not look at that and then think, I don't know how much they got for that fight. I'll bet you between them, they got a lot less than Chavez Jr. got. And, and you know, and, and that's the thing, you know, like that attitude that he brings, that entitlement, it's, it's a disgrace it's just, and it's an insult to people like Horn and Zarafa who just find depths that normal human beings shouldn't be able to find um, in order to try and win that. Uh, if he had, you know, if he had an iota of the bravery and bloody determination of those two, he might be a good fighter. But right. right anyway, enough of that. No need to drag <laughs> them down with him. Uh, congratulations to both Horn and Zarafa for uh, a terrific, terrific fight. Mulvaney staying pissed. Right. <laughs> Not letting it go. Not moving on. <laughs> I'm done now. I'm done. All right. Serenity All right. Now. Good. Okay. Serenity now. <laughs> insanity later uh let's turn our attention to this upcoming saturday december 28th when showtime ends the year in style with a live triple header of action and a quick reminder that you can watch this fight card absolutely free if you're not a showtime subscriber this is your last chance to start your 30-day free trial just go to showtime.com slash try 30 that's t-r-y-3-0 and enter the code showbox that's s-h-o-b-o-x to start that 30-day trial this offer expires December 31st. So pause the podcast now, take out the earbuds, get this done before it's too late. Go to Showtime.com slash Try30 to take advantage of this special offer so you can enjoy Showtime Championship Boxing live from State Farm Arena in Atlanta, headlined by undefeated star Gervonta Davis, one of the biggest ticket sellers in American boxing, moving up to lightweight and facing arguably his most dangerous opponent yet, Cuban veteran Yuriorkis Gamboa. This is the third boxing show ever at State Farm Arena, home of the Atlanta Hawks, and it's the first boxing show at this arena not to have Leila Ali on the card. Uh, Davis is 22-0, 21 knockouts, the second highest KO percentage of any reigning title holder. Gamboa comes in at 30-2 with 18 KOs. Uh, there is a vacant belt at stake, but I will vomit if I try to explain the machinations <laughs> behind how it came to be. All you need to know is Vasily Lomachenko is the king of 135, and Gervonta Davis, if he wins, moved right in alongside Teofimo Lopez and Devin Haney as one of the bright young stars and top contenders to Lomachenko. A lot at stake here. Uh, Kieran, we know about Davis's struggles to make 130 pounds. Do you think we might actually see a better version of Gervonta as he joins the lightweight mm. ranks? Uh, and where do you see him fitting in with those top 135-pounders? Well, I mean, look, obviously we'll learn more on Saturday, but, you know, you have to feel that clearly he's immediately sort of in among the mix of the top there. It sort of felt 130, especially, you know, after Lomachenko had moved up, that there were really sort of three people who were fairly clearly ahead of the rest. And that's Miguel Bachelt, Tevin Farmer and Davis. And then you had guys like Jamel Herring tucked in just behind them. Um, but at 135, it just feels different. It feels like it's a bit of a deeper scene. Um, obviously, Lomachenko is, until unless proven otherwise, the the man way at the top there. Um, and you mentioned the two who probably stand you know, closest behind him right now, Tiafimo Lopez and Devin Haney. And, um, you know, if, if uh, Javante wins and wins well on Saturday, like you said, he'll be right in that mix. But but sort of after that, it's, it's interesting. Um, you've got Jose Pedraza in there, but who's, who's, who's highly regarded and ranked at lightweight, but Davis already has a good win at 130 over him. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, He'd struggle terribly at lightweight against, say, a Mikey Garcia, who'd be a nightmare opponent for him, uh, I think. But it looks as if, you know, that ship has sailed and that Garcia seems to be committed to uh, welterweight now. Um, you know, who else? Uh, you know, somebody like Luke Campbell might be a tough out for him, I suspect, as well. The, the problem for Javante is that 
He just doesn't quite fit physically at either 130 or 135. He's just he's too naturally solid to easily and comfortably continue to make 130. And he's short for 135. Um, so, you know, 135 is probably going to be better for him in terms of being comfortable and making weight and all of that kind of stuff. But he's going to be up against guys who, from time to time, who have some real physical advantages over him in terms of height and reach. That wasn't right. necessarily always the case at 130. It's going to be more frequently the case at 135. But he clearly lands in the top, you know, four or so at lightweight, assuming he takes care of business. Um, the problem, the only problem is going to be, again... As it was at 130, finding him opponents. I think, you know, Haney's at zone now, Lomachenko and Lopez with ESPN. Mm. Um, he may not find it any easier to attract big-name opposition than he has to this point, but look, you mentioned the fact that he's one of the biggest ticket sellers. That's going to be important for him. He needs to continue winning and winning spectacularly and attracting large crowds and viewing figures as he does so. Money talks, nay, screams even and so you know uh, as long as he could just continue to be successful be spectacularly successful and making a lot of people a lot of money it will be amazing what obstacles can be sorted out uh but turning our attention to yuriyorkis gambala um he's been knocked down a remarkable 14 times as a pro uh across 10 fights but he's actually gone eight and two in those fights uh he goes down but he usually gets up to win uh one time when he didn't was against Terence Crawford in 2014, a fight of the year candidate uh, that ended in a ninth round stoppage win for Crawford. It was still one of the very favorite fight experiences that I've ever had ringside there in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, but he's now 37 years old. He's five years removed from that fight. Um, Gambo is seven and one since. Uh, the big question is, what does he have left? Uh, the Gamboa who fought Crawford and who gave Terence some problems early in that oh, yeah. fight. Yep. Um, he'd be a serious threat to Javante Davis. Is he that Gamboa? And if not, how close is he to that Gamboa? So Gamboa has the one bad loss on his record uh, against Robinson Castellanos in in 2017. Uh, Otherwise, he hasn't looked especially washed to me these last few years. Uh, The Jason Sosa fight was close. uh, But if you aren't Vasily Lomachenko or Miguel Burchelt, you know, Sosa is a tough out. Uh, I think Gamboa is still a credible contender at 37. That said, you talked about those 14 knockdowns. Davis has never been knocked down. So Gamboa has his work cut out for him. He's a very big underdog between plus 650 and plus 850 where I looked. Uh, And he's a big underdog for a reason. Uh, And the suspicion that he might be over the hill is only part of that. I I don't think he is quite over the hill, um, but uh, there, there are a lot of factors making him a big underdog here and the fact that some people kind of think he may be more washed than he is is a part of that um a couple of stylistic notes first davis is the first southpaw uh, gamboa will have faced since crawford uh and uh, javante is rarely the taller man you were talking about that how he was uh, short even for 130 pounds but uh, he actually is the taller man here five foot five and a half to five foot four and a half at least according to official heights uh these guys have sparred against each other also uh, what do you think of the way the styles will mesh? And uh, do you think either of these guys want to make it a boxing match or would you expect them both to be willing to punch it out? What, what do you think? So you got to figure, right, that Davis is going to be the one who's more interested in letting that, his hands go and really pushing to make it a fight early, I would think. Yeah, you know, like you, you already talked about this. We talked about how Gamboa, you know, can be knocked down. Um, but Giovanni's chin, like, appears to be very, very solid. Um you know, so there might be 
I kind of wonder if there might be a round or two of feeling out here because partly because they've sparred each other, but also because I just think just generally each man is probably going to be respectful of the other's speed and skill. Uh, Davis, I think, isn't used to being in with somebody who might even be able to match him or at least come close to that hand speed wise. So I think he's going to be respectful of that. Um, so I, I think if anybody's going to keep it a boxing match, it's probably going to be Gamboa because um, he went the distance, I think it was three times in a row after that Robinson Castellanos uh, fight before he obliterated the empty shell of what used to be Rocky Martinez. But um at some point, though, you've got to figure he is going to need to get Javante's respect. Um, and in the same way that Davis isn't used to, I think, facing guys who are perhaps as fast as them, the same applies for Gamboa. That's, it's unusual for him as well. So, um, you know, I guess the key here is to some extent what kind of intent Gamboa is going to come in with, whether he's going to come in with a real intent, intent to try to um, win this, and if so, you know, with what degree of ferocity. So... Um, at some point, I think, assuming that he wants to come in and he wants to make a statement and he really thinks he can win this and he wants to try to win, at some point this is going to start to open up, I think. I just don't see this being a boxing match all the way through. Uh, and I could see a couple of rounds of, of testing each other. And then I think, and it's just the nature of both guys, that, that they tend to just step into their punches once they're in the groove. Uh, I think this is going to turn into to a, to a bit of a firefight after the first couple of rounds my, my, would be my guess. All right, let's talk about the two undercard fights. Uh, first, at light heavyweight, a couple of proven veterans, uh, 37-year-old Jean-Pascal and 36-year-old Badu Jack. And I must admit, I hadn't quite appreciated that Badu is just about as old as Jean-Pascal. Um, they meet in a 12-rounder uh, like Davis and Gamboa. They've spotted each other in the past. Uh, they do have a lot in common, as it turns out. Uh, they are both former Olympic middleweights who lost in the opening round of their respective tournaments. Um, Pascal... Is coming off uh, an upset technical decision over Marcus Brown in August. He's 34, 6, and 1 with 20 KOs. Jack's record stands at 22, 2, and 3 with 13 KOs. And in his last fight, he suffered a nasty cut and lost by, honestly, an uninspired-looking, almost insipid decision to that same Marcus Brown who just lost to Pascal. So I think a year ago, I don't think there would have been very much difficulty in figuring this. I think Jack would have been a big favorite it might well be a tougher call now. Do, do you, is this a fight where you see them as kind of like comparable talents? And, and is this just a case of seeing which guy has more left? Yeah, uh, probably. It, it'll come down to a few things, but that, that's a big one. Just is one guy closer to the end than the other? Uh, and I'm finding myself wondering with Pascal coming off that impressive win over Brown, was he maybe never as washed as I thought mm. Uh, and, and he just ran into a buzzsaw in prime Kovalev, and that kind of skewed uh, my my opinion of where he stood at this point. You know, his, his early losses were close decisions to Carl Frotch and Bernard Hopkins. Uh, no shame in those, even if B-Hop was in the back half of his 40s at the time. Um, then he had the two stoppage losses to Kovalev. Those were pretty brutal. But then a majority decision to a later Alvarez, outboxed by Dimitri Bivol. Yeah, Pascal, I'm starting to think he's not actually all that diminished. Uh, now, watch him go out there and look completely shot now, now that I've said that. Um, but uh, no, Pascal still has a little something left, I think. Um, it's funny, we think of Pascal as a pretty good puncher, uh, but he has just one KO win in 12 fights against fellow title holders. So he's not that big of a puncher, perhaps. Um, on the flip side, Badu Jack is a really slow starter. He's been yeah. dropped three times in his career, all in the first round. Um, so getting back to your question, I think of these fighters as comparable talents. 
Uh, and there will be a few key factors from who has more left to can Jack start faster to can Pascal hurt Jack. Lots of intrigue here for me. In the opening bout of the broadcast, super middleweight action, Jose Uzcategui. Uh, say it after me, Kieran. Uh, Uzcategui. I think I think you got it right earlier in the podcast already. Uh, so we, we've we've learned since last week. <laughs> right, exactly. I did I did my homework. Good, good. Uh, so he meets Lionel Thompson, who we talked about at the very top of the show, uh, in about scheduled 4-10. Uzkatagi is 29 and three with 24 KOs. Thompson's record is 21 and five with 12 KOs. He's the boxer here, and apparently he talked to fellow skilled boxer Caleb Plant for tips after signing this fight. Since Plant, of course, defeated Uzkatagi in January and remains very bitter toward me for betting against him. Uh, I'll never forget that glower. (laughs) We'll never forget it. Man has a mean stare. I'm hoping he's kind of forgotten who I am. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's my best case scenario. Uh, The contract weight is 168 pounds and Thompson has never fought below 173. So that adds a wrinkle. Uh, Thompson's record is spotty. A few good wins, a few bad losses. Do you see anything on there to suggest he's a live dog against the heavy handed Uzkatagi? On the record, going just by the record, not really. He has, he's got, like he said, he's got a couple of decent wins. Um, he sent Ryan Coyne into retirement, but that was back in 2013. Um, he's got a win over Donovan George, which was sort of at the time a good marker as to whether you get to be in that B to B minus or C minus below type of category. Um, he's got a win over Derek Finley, which... At one point, was considered a sort of rite of passage because Findlay was this <laughs> guy who would like give you hell even with a loss. But right. I'm not sure he's still at that dangerous phase of his career. Um, uh, and and that's kind of the level he's been operating on, which is a good level below Oskadagi. I mean, look, and again, Oskadagi, he's not a Hall of Famer himself, but you know, he's been in, he's gone the distance with Matt Korobov. As we mentioned, he's gone the distance with Caleb Plan. Um, his only other loss was that. DQ against Andre Durrell, which he invented emphatically. Uskadagi um, isn't somebody who's going to suddenly ascend a level and be like a, an absolute world beater. But I haven't, I don't know. It was about the plant performance wasn't it wasn't great for him. But I don't know that there's any indication that he's dropping any either. Um, he is what he is, and it's also not as if like even you know we haven't seen much of him. I don't know that you know it isn't that Thompson's a kid. He's I think 34, right? Um, and he hasn't broken through yet. So I don't think there's any reason to suggest that he is suddenly going to break through to that level. So, so no, based solely on records, you would have to think that Escaragüe is the favorite here. Um, and we will get to our picks on all three fights in a bit. Um, but first, before we do that, let's bring on a familiar voice to help us break them down a little bit more. And we welcome once again to the podcast an audience favorite, making his third appearance of 2019. He is the trainer of Julian J. Rock Williams, Stephen Redman Edwards. Stephen, hey, thanks very much for joining us again. Hey, how you guys doing? Good, good. Thank you, man. Hey, look, um, we'd really like to get your thoughts uh, coming up on this Saturday's Showtime Triple Header. But before we do that, we've got to ask you for your take on uh, Jamel Charlo's 11th round knockout of Tony Harrison on Saturday night. Since that fight, obviously, was of particular importance to you and J-Rock. How impressed were you with Charlo? Uh, Who did you think was winning at the time of the stoppage? And what did you think about that stoppage? Uh, I thought it was a tremendous fight. It really was. That goes to show you when you put two young guys that really want to win and uh, build their legacies in the fight, um, you know, you usually get good fights. It, it was it was, it was, was an excellent fight. It really was. You know, that's why they got to watch. We're giving out 
fight of the year awards before the year right. is over with. Mm. I'm not saying that fight would have won fight of the year, but that was a that was a tremendous fight. Um, I thought Harrison was winning. I'm really shocked. I'm not shocked because I kind of had a feeling that um, that some things were going to be against Harrison mm. as far as, you know, A-side, B-side stuff in boxing. But I really thought Harrison was winning the fight. Uh, I thought he was winning from the outside. And I thought he was winning from the inside. You know, he started walking towards Jamel. Uh, I was really su- surprised. Uh, he must have he must have found something, and he was beating Jamel on the inside. You know, the narrative of the fight was that he had to like box and move, but he was conserving his energy and walking towards him, and he was doing well. Um, I was very impressed. But it's not an eleven round fight; it's a twelve right. round fight, and you got to give. Jamel credit for his chin and his tenacity and his grit, you know, because that's what won him to fight. Harrison is the more skilled fighter, but Jamel can take more punishment and he never stopped trying. And Harrison got a little bit lax and Harrison, I think fights tries to fight almost too relaxed because he's burned out and been tired before. So he makes a conscious effort to not get excited and not, um, overdo it and everything he does he tries to conserve energy and while he's doing that you, you don't want to get too lax in a, in, a, in a fight you know you can get clipped you you you, you want to be relaxed but you want to be very very sharp and cognizant and have a level of awareness of what's going on and um i think he got too lax and jamel kept trying and he kept trying and he clipped them but those the scorecards and the punch stats they were just Inaccurate. I know it doesn't matter now, but you you talk about a terrible controversy if uh if 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 that fight would have went to the scorecards. There, J- Jamel wasn't winning that fight. You know, um, it's a shame, but that's how boxing goes. Harrison had won from what my eyes were telling me about six or seven rounds. It was competitive, but he was winning, mm-hmm. and the punch stats weren't close. He was landing clean, precise, eye catching punches. You know, I give both guys credit. They fought their butts up, but you don't want to um, – I, I don't think that it's fair to create a false narrative with the viewers right. where you make things look closer than what it is. Just let the fight be what it is. Jamel's a, 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 a tremendous fighter. He don't need no help. You know what right. I mean? I don't, you know, I, don't, I don't like that. You know, I'm looking at the punch stats. They wasn't even counting Tony's punches. Mm-hmm. That wasn't right. You know, and, and, and I'm not criticizing the judges because sometimes watching a fight live is different than watching a fight on TV. Right. But I saw Harrison getting the better of that fight. Mm. That's what I saw. He wasn't blowing them out, wasn't dominating them, but he was winning the majority of the rounds with clean punching and a good jab, and he was catching a lot of Jamel's shots on his on his gloves and arms. That's what I saw. Sounds like you were fighting with a stoppage, though. Um. I don't have a problem with the stoppage. I would have liked it. Jamel got so excited, and 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 like I would have liked to have seen if Tony could maybe weather the storm for about ten seconds. But I'm not complaining about the stoppage at all. What is more peculiar to me is, and I know it's a different referee, right? But what's more peculiar to me is the fight on the undercard with the Balderas kid. Right. He got every chance in the world to continue. And you're talking about a six or eight round preliminary fighter. 
he was asked to walk forward and he stumbled back and his fight wasn't stopped. I know it's different referees, different perspectives, different discretion. But man, <laughs> you you just think to yourself, you, you would like to see consistency. You know, uh, Tony Harrison is fighting for a seven-figure payday. He's fighting for legacy and a world title fight that he's winning in the 12-round fight, and he don't get afforded the same opportunity as a as an eight-round kid. Mm. And I'm, I'm just just if you just hold that those two instances up side by side, you just see a difference, you know. But I'm not I'm not complaining about the stoppage. Too many bad things have been happening in boxing, but it definitely one kid was afforded more luxury, and you would figure that Tony Harrison would be afforded more luxury considering who he was and what they were fighting for. But, you know, there's an A-side and B-side in boxing, and people don't like to admit it, but it's the truth. And usually the A-side gets afforded those type of things. Yep, yep. exactly. Yeah, I, I, w- I was venting about the same thing with the, the Balderas fight earlier in the podcast. That was outrageous. Um, but, you know, f- focusing on this here, you know, Charlo got the win. Um, so I know Julian needs to get past Jason Rosario first, and uh, you guys aren't, aren't looking past that. But assuming he does, he'll fight Charlo now in the spring. What did you see from Jermel, good or bad, that you think applies to Julian fighting him like Jermel certainly attacked pretty wildly in spots did, did that have you licking your lips at all um you know I'm not gonna get into it much we got a fight um we got a tough fight but one thing that I do find that was weird was that it was set up for you know Julian to fight the winner of this fight but Jamel said he wanted to fight a trilogy with Tony hmm. and when they asked him about interview he did and uh you know he never said anything so as far as i'm concerned the fight is signed mm. fighting him in the, in the in the spring early part of the summer so i don't know what's going on with that but we gotta get past uh jason rosario before anything comes you can't look past an opponent so ask me that january 18th <laughs> okay. if we successful um, you know, I'm telling you that from our side, the unification is done. I don't know anything about anything else. Okay, mm. gotcha. All right. So let's let's move ahead. Let's look to this Saturday on Showtime uh, in the in our main event, uh, Javante Davis <clears throat> taking on Yuriorkis Gamboa. A really curious for your assessment of, of Javante and how high do you think his ceiling is? Do you think he's a potential like top pound for pounder? Um, and do you think that Gamboa, he's, he's going to be in with a guy who's, you know, pretty much as fast as he is. Do you think that Gamboa's speed might bother him on Saturday? Um, I think Javante Davis is a tremendous talent. I think he's one of the better punchers in all of boxing. Uh, he has really, really fast hands. He has brutal uppercuts and hooks. He reminds me of a mix of of uh, Mike Tyson and Zab Judah. Mm. That's what he, if, if Mike Tyson and Zab Judah had a baby, that's what <laughs> it, it, it looks like it would be Javante Davis. He's a, I think he's a tremendous fighter. Um, I would like to see him. Like I haven't, it's certain things that I can't, I don't want to give him credit for because I haven't seen him do it yet. And I want to see him adjust in a fight where, you know, um, he may not be winning or it may not be clear cut that he's winning. He's always the dog fighting on top in all of his fights. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, I got to see more things out because he's only went the distance one time and he really hasn't been pushed. And the only fighter that he's fought with, you know, t- uh, the type that that could even challenge him slightly was Pedraza. It doesn't seem, you know, and he dominated that fight. I give him full credit for that. But, you know, I, I just want to see him more against a certain level of competition because in boxing, sometimes you could look a certain way because of the level of guy you're fighting, or sometimes you could look a certain way because you're really that good. I believe he's really that good, but I want to just see it. You know what I mean? Right. I want to see him do it instead of just giving him credit for doing it. Um, I think that this is a good fight. I think that Gamboa's a little bit on the shot side, and he's always had one of those weird chins where he's easy to hurt, but he can kind of recover quickly. It's kind of like his equilibrium and his nervous system always gets knocked off, even in his prom. But I've seen the work he was doing, man. He looks sharp. You know, he looks really, really sharp. He 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 was throwing some interesting combinations. Um, he he was locked in. Uh, I, I, he's working on shots that I think that he thinks that he can hit Davis with. And um, I'm very I'm very curious to see what's going to happen in this fight if Gamboa doesn't get clipped early. Mm. I, I really, really am. I think that uh, that this could get interesting if he doesn't get clipped. Mm. You know, but, but but getting out of the first two rounds is, is going to be a task because Davis is a fast starter. And like I said, Gamboa is one of those guys that even in his prom, he was always getting dropped and always getting hurt. So I think that uh, stylistically that matches up for um, – that's a favorable thing for Davis. But Davis is a kid that it, 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 I don't know him personally, but it appears that he's ha- been having consistent weight issues. He's a short guy, yep. and he's moving. And, you know, I remember he was, like, early in his career, he was supposed to be a 26-pounder, then he was a 30-pounder, and he had problems making weight with, you know, one of his championship fights. Now he's a 35-pounder. Those 35-pounders, those dudes are about 5'8". You know, they got 70-inch arms. They're bigger. They're bigger men. You know what I mean? I can remember a time where 35 was supposedly too big for Gamboa when he went up to fight Crawford. So um, when whenever you're dealing with weight issues, you always got to, you know, factor in um, certain things. You know, how a guy's training camp was and how strong he's going to be, you know, on the night of the fight. But I think it's, uh, I think it's a competitive fight. I can't pick Gamboa because he's older. He's always going down, and let's be honest, he was picked for a reason. Right. You know, they, they, they didn't pick him for Javante Davis to lose, but fights are won in the ring, and um, I'm, um, I'm interested to see a fight. I think it should be a good shootout. Okay. Uh, speaking of uh, competitive fights, the co-feature brings a couple of veterans together, Jean Pascal and Badu Jack. Uh, Pascal beat Marcus Brown, who beat Jack. Uh, so does that make Pascal a favorite here, or is this one of those Ali, Foreman, Frazier, Norton things where it's all about the styles? Um, the triangle theory doesn't work in boxing. You know, so I don't. I try not to get into that. Like, one guy beat this guy, and that, because you can't. Things, it doesn't work that way in boxing. But I do think I actually think that Pascal has the advantage because I think that Jack's hard, hard fights with his grinding style, and I think he probably struggles to make weight. I think that it, uh, you know, I think a lot of things have been catching up with Jack. Jack was one of my favorite fighters, man. He, he I think he maximized his ability, but 
he looked real, he looked a different kind of flat to me in mm. his last couple of fights. And I think he's a guy that comes down really, really far in weight. And I think that Pascal has those quick, explosive type of outbursts that's going to give Jack a lot of trouble. You know, um, I don't know who's the favorite and who is the underdog, but I have, uh, um, I think that uh, Pascal has an advantage in this fight, believe it or not. I really mm, do. Okay. I think okay. that, I think um, Jack is going, unless he can really, really change whatever he's been doing, you know, his last couple of fights, I think that uh, Pascal has an advantage. Interesting. Interesting. <clears throat> so the opening bout. Uh, we've got Jose Uscadegui against uh, Lionel Thompson. I imagine you've seen plenty of Uscadegui. I, I don't know if you're as familiar at all with Lionel Thompson. Is he a fighter you've seen at all and, yes, and studied? I've seen him. I've seen him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and what are your thoughts on Uscadegui? Do you think he's better than he showed against Caleb Plant? Um, I think he's good. You know, I picked Plant to beat him, though. Mm. I think that... Um, I think he's very good, but fighters who fight like that physical rolling downhill style, you know, sometimes when they get into a fight with a guy who's not afraid of them and kind of, it kind of like takes their armor away from them, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, I, I I don't know how he's going to look now that Caleb Plant did what he did, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know if we... Sometimes we can't judge a guy on a small microcosm. We judge them on Andre Durrell, you know, but maybe, you know, Durrell just couldn't handle a dude like him, you know, like I, I want to see him against more people. I think, I know, I think he's good, but um, I don't know if he is the horror movie that he looked like against Durrell. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can we can go a little bit overboard with that. Thompson is a, a decent guy. He's serviceable. I've seen him a few times. He pulled Kovalev back in the day. Right. He can fight. You know, I don't know how much le- he got left in the tank, but he can definitely fight. All right. Well, we always like to end our conversations with you with some betting talk. Um, unfortunately, I'm not seeing odds yet for either of those undercard bouts, uh, but uh, I am seeing just straight-up winner odds in the main event. Javante is a huge favorite. I'm seeing him anywhere between minus 1,200 and minus 2,000. Uh, that feels to me uh, like like way too much to lay. Uh, but w- what about Gamboa as as high as plus 850? Do you, do you like that price on the underdog? I do. I do, man. I'm mm. telling you, I seen something in Gamboa. I seen something in his coach. I seen. So I don't. I don't. I don't like to give away nobody's game plan or whatever, you know. Cause, but I saw them working on some stuff, man, and I was like, whoa. And in my opinion, repetition is the key. Mm. And when you do the same thing over and over again, you see something. Hmm. And Gamboa sees something in Davis, and I'm telling you, if he don't get clipped early, Davis gonna have a fight on his hands. Hmm. I think it's some value in Gamboa. I, I, I wouldn't pick him to win, right? But man, at plus eight fifty, I take a shot at him. <laughs> right? Yeah, so- yeah if you got, I'm telling you, he he got a shot of winning this fight, man. Hmm. You, and you can't keep playing with them scales if you, like you can't keep losing that kind of weight. When I see Davis training, he's always he always has a rubber suit on. Yeah, he does. You know, yep. right. So when when you say you've been watching Gamboa train, he's actually been in in the same gym with you, or is this just video no, clips that you're I seeing? Or some video of okay. him, man. Okay, right. that was that was some good shit. 
<laughs> you know, I don't get impressed with like bunch of pop, 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 pop on the pads. But when I see somebody doing something correct with their feet up under them in a rhythm over and over and over, repetition is the key. If you drill something enough times, your coach don't even have to ask for it in the fight. It'll just come off. And, man, he is, I'm telling you, he's on to something. I don't, mm, know, I, I don't know if he can win. I really don't. I don't know how much he has left. He's had the PED little issues a few years ago. His name was on some kind of thing down in Florida. He's been he's taking some losses. I get it. I understand it. But with his pedigree and the things that he's working on, I really think that this kid has a, that that he got a shot. You know, uh, and I, I I would definitely think it's some value um, in betting on Gamboa in this fight. And I didn't believe that. I didn't think that until I saw how sharp he was looking. I was like, damn. Hmm. All right, brother. Hey, look, thanks for that insight. And, and, and thanks for being a part of this podcast in the latter part of the year. It's been really great to have you on. And, and I know our listeners really enjoy it. And um, enjoy the holidays as much as you can, given that you guys are going to be in camp and working hard for a few weeks yet. Oh, but, man, um... I know, right? <laughs> we used to it, though, man. We'll work right through that. All right. Hey, thanks, man. And we will talk to you again in 2020. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Stephen. All right. All right, our thanks again to Breadman, uh, and as Kieran said, our thanks to him for all of his insights during the stretch run of 2019. And now it's time for our predictions. This is it, Kieran. Final Showtime boxing broadcast of the year. Last chance for you to make up points. Time to find out if you really have me right where you want me. Uh, I'm ahead 66 points to 63. And you pick first on the main event. So who you got in Davis Gamboa? Brad's got me thinking a little bit with a couple of these picks, actually. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I'm sort of going to stick with how I think it's going to unfold, like the way that I was talking about earlier. I, I suspect we're going to see a round or two uh, of these two sizing each other up behind, you know, some pretty quick jabs and some feints before it really does start to heat up. Um, you know, I expect Davis to be the one to start pressing the action, but Gamboa is going to respond. He's he, he's going to catch Davis a few times too and really get his attention. But I think that'll just make Javante, you know, bite down harder and come back at him, turn this into a firefight. And I don't think that Gamboa will have this, the, the, the length or the strength or ultimately the punch resistance to keep him at bay. It'll be a couple of intriguing boxing rounds. It'll turn into a firefight. I think it'll end with Davis actually stopping him in round seven. Seven. Okay. Uh, well, the good news for you, I guess, is we don't have the exact same uh, pick here, uh, which opens the door that if you happen to nail the exact round, that's uh, three points right there that you would uh, catch up on me and, uh, and in fact, uh, tie things up, uh, ignoring what happens in the other fights. But, um, yeah, I, I think I think Breadman nailed it here that uh, those first two or three rounds are going to be really tough for Gamboa to survive. But if he does, he really has a chance in this. Um I just see that as a huge if getting through those early rounds. Davis is probably one of the 10 best pound for pound punchers and finishers in boxing right now of his last five fights. Four have ended in the first three rounds. He starts fast. He's aggressive. Now there will be counter punching opportunities for Gamboa. Um, but if I had to guess, and I do, that's how the prediction segment works. Uh, <laughs> I'd say he's not going to last long enough to take advantage of those opportunities. I'm saying a much quicker fight than you, but a thrilling one. As long as it lasts, Javante Davis KO three for me. Okay. 
Uh, and now I pick first in Pascal versus Jack. And uh, who am I to go against uh, Stephen Breadman Edwards? Uh, Jack did look really flat against Marcus yeah. Brown. Maybe that first round head clash had a lot to do with his performance, but yeah, I, I think Pascal is a little quicker still and can land shots on Jack. There's always a worry with Pascal that he won't let his hands go, but I think he will here. This will be a really close fight. I'm going to take Jean Pascal by majority decision. Uh, and by the way, we know Badu Jack is the king of majority draws. Yeah, exactly. uh, I could absolutely see uh, that sort of outcome here, too. But uh, officially, Pascal, majority decision for me. Yeah, I actually did make a note that like the uh, the, the way to close the gap there is, is to just pick Badu Jack with a draw. Um, but see, this is an interesting one, right? Because there's, there are two issues here. Who do I think is most likely to win and what is my strategy for closing yep. the gap yep. you see and i don't know that i feel sufficiently strongly one way or the other to not just go for the strategic um pick here <clears throat> you know it's interesting i feel like you know pascal did kind of lose every round against marcus brown except the ones that he dropped him in really hard in that fight but nonetheless he did win those rounds and jack did look really bad um it was there was something about that fight against Marcus Brown, and you and I were inside for it, uh, for Badu Jack, that there was just, that looked like a very flat guy who was basically done. Um, there's no question. But on the other hand, you know, even though he left it too late to pull off the win, he he didn't look too bad at all, uh, especially over the second half of the fight against Dunna Stevenson. Um, right. I'm, he, Brown was out hustling him really significantly look much stronger than him appear to have the desire and energy it may very well be that jack is actually quietly on more of a downslope than pascal whom as you mentioned we thought was already on a downslope um my inclination my strong inclination is to think that that is in fact the case and that pascal's going to pull out the win here but i gotta i gotta show that i have you where i want you and i'm gonna go for bad badu jack by split decision okay uh smart smart bit of strategery on your part, um, and uh, boy, wouldn't it be something if uh, you and Breadman talked beforehand, and uh, he actually doesn't believe at all that Pascal's going to win, and you guys just rope-a-doped me into making a bad pick. <laughs> if you, if that was what happened here, I give you full credit for uh, a masterful plan. Well, 2019, ladies and gentlemen, where conspiracy <laughs> theories just are found everywhere. Um, uh, finally, as for Skadiki Thompson, uh, I, I just don't see anything, as I mentioned in Thompson's record, to suggest that uh, he has what it takes to make this jump up in opposition. Uh, nor have I seen any sign that Skadiki is, is slipping enough for someone at Thompson's level to take him. I'm not sure this will be an especially scintillating contest. Uh, I do think Skadiki will have enough to outwork Thompson in just about every round. I'm not sure that he stops him. I'm going to take a unanimous decision here. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I too think Uskadagi is in pretty safe here. Thompson is competent, credible, has the basic skills, but he's pretty much a club fighter. And, you know, Uskadagi wasn't totally blown out by Caleb Plant. He won like four or right. five rounds, uh, but also got dropped a couple of times. So the scorecards were ultimately fairly wide. But he's a solid fighter in his prime at 28. I just don't think Thompson is slick enough as Plant was to get the better of him. Um, I'm actually going to say Uskatagi stops him somewhat late, mm. maybe maybe around the eighth round I'll go for. Okay. Right. So you've heard my picks. 
You've heard Kieran's picks. Don't forget to get your picks in as it's the final week of the 2019 Showtime Boxing Pick'em on DraftKings. Just go to DraftKings.com Showtime. Even if you haven't played yet this season, uh, you can still sign up and play this week for your shot at a share of $5,000 in cash plus swag bags. Uh, and Kieran, I checked the standings. I'm in 17th place entering the final card. Not bad out of many thousands, uh, but also not good enough to win. Uh, I don't think I can catch first place. But all in all, I've done well, and so you should feel no shame in losing to me in our podcast picks contest. Which I won't. (laughs) You won't feel shame? I won't won't lose. Go Badu. Team Jack, baby. All right. (laughs) Team Jack. Uh, Boy, yeah. All right. I'll move on. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Moving on. (laughs) Hashtag. Um, okay. Uh, before we get to the news of the week, uh, a quick note that there's one other fight card to look ahead to. It's actually Monday, December 23rd in Yokohama, Japan. So it might even be over by the time you hear this, but there are several alphabet title fights on the card. Ryota Murata versus Steven Butler at middleweight. Maruti Matalane versus Akira Yagashi at flyweight. And Ken Shiro versus Randy Petalkorin at Junior Fly. Uh, plus our old pal Chuck Latito Gonzalez will be in action in an eight-rounder. We'll discuss the show next week if anything interesting happens. Anything you want to say about it for now, Kieran? Yeah, it's a nice card, actually, top to bottom. Um, but it does also show how easy it is to fall from the highest rungs of the ladder, that the man who's the cons- who was the consensus pound-for-pound number one barely two years ago is now mm. fighting an out- eight-rounder deep on an undercard. But, um, yeah. yeah, look, even though it looked for sure, I thought as if it was all over for Chocolatito after that second kept fight, he's, he's looked pretty good, at least what I've seen of him uh, since he came back. And um, I don't know what he's got in the medium to long term, but it's Chocolatito. So if I can watch... I'll watch, and if not, I'll be keeping an eye on how he does. All right. Um, All right. Finally, let's get to the news. Uh, We start with several fight announcements. Uh, On Showtime, the 2020 schedule is filling in. On January 25th, it is now official. Danny Garcia meets Ivan Redkak. And on the undercard, Jarrett Hurd returns against Francisco Chia Santana. And Stephen Fulton faces off against Arnold Kagai. And two weeks later, on February 8th, the card has been announced that will feature one of our favorite podcast guests, Miss... Or Gary Russell Jr. <laughs> Meaning, you, you know what? And I was thinking to myself, you know, it's very nice of the way that Eric worked out this outline that he had to rattle off all those names. But I'm like, <laughs> he normally gives this to me. But lo and behold, no Gary Russell Jr. Meaning Tukstot Nyambiar. You know his nickname. He's King Tug. You could go with that from now on if you want. Hashtag. Also, <laughs> yes. uh, actually, a very, I think, a pretty interesting fight set for February 29th on Zone was announced this week. Uh, I mentioned earlier that it looks like Mikey Garcia sticking at welterweight. Sure seems that way. He's taken on Jesse Vargas. Uh, any thoughts, Eric, on any of those matchups? I'm glad to have Mr. Gary Russell Jr. coming Anything. out of hibernation. Uh, hopefully a podcast appearance will accompany that. Uh, and uh, it's in Allentown, which is a doable field trip for me. Uh, alas, he only fought once in 2019. So uh, shrug emoji on that. Uh, King Tug is undefeated and probably in over his head here. Uh, But he does have a nice KO3 over the very same Oscar Escandone who just knocked out Jack Tapora. So there's that. Um, Glad to see Hurd back in the ring as well. And Fulton Kagai is a great matchup that works either as a showbox main event or a Showtime Championship boxing opener. Uh, Mikey Garcia versus Jesse Vargas, a strong fight, too, on uh, Leap Year Day, February 29th. Um, In general, I'd say 2020 is shaping up to be an awful year uh, in the world and in America. Uh, It's going to get quite unbearable, but boxing-wise, lots of early (laughs) promise. Yeah. 
Um, you mentioned last week that Tyson Fury had made a change to his team. Uh, trainer Ben Davison out, Javon Sugarhill Stewart in. Here's a more unusual item. Anthony Joshua has offered to provide Fury with sparring prior to his rematch with Deontay Wilder. I can barely wrap my mind around this. <laughs> I don't know what Joshua is thinking. Uh, Kieran, is there any chance these guys' teams let them actually spar with each other? No, no, certainly not AJ's. Uh, and, you know, and AJ was immediately walking it back, uh, telling IFL TV, I think the next day, that, quote, sometimes when I look back on some of the shit I say, I think, why did I say that? Um, <laughs> but then having said that, he then continued to say that he's still trying to, you know, improve in the ring and that sparring fury would only do him good and he'd only learn from it, which is which is this whole new wrinkle on this whole sparring partner's mentality business. I mean, it's just weird. Um I mean, yeah, Joshua sparred Vladimir Klitschko, but that was years before he was ready to face him in the ring. I mean, here you've got one heavyweight championship claimant offering to spar the lineal heavyweight champion because he thinks he can learn from it. And before he actually faces said lineal champ, it's just it's just weird. I, I just think this is a maybe AJ just some. Well, maybe AJ's like, right. You know, why did I why did I say that? Some, maybe he just came out with it and was thinking that maybe on a theoretical and intellectual level it could be useful for him but he probably could have and maybe should have kept that thought to himself i think probably that's not gonna happen (laughs) um uh also what normally isn't gonna happen is us talking about alphabet belts but we are gonna have one quick mention here um because canelo alvarez has vacated his light heavyweight belt uh and the reason we're mentioning that is that matters. Uh, that indicates that uh, he won't be fighting at 175 pounds again, or at least not in the immediate future. Does this mean, Eric, that your dream of Canelo Batobiev is dead? Yeah, pretty sure it does mean that, at least for 2020. Uh, but then again, the dream was never all that alive. Uh, I never really thought the fight was likely. Eventually, if Batobiev has some real star power built up in a year or two and Canelo is ready to become a full-time light heavyweight... Maybe it can happen, but uh, no surprise, really, that Canelo will be fighting next at either 168 or 160. And uh, my guess is uh, he will be off until Cinco de Mayo weekend. It seems that's most likely when we'll see Canelo in action again. Um, and we finish on a sad note. Uh, R.I.P. Saul Mambi, the former super lightweight belt holder, died at the age of 72 last week. His prime was a little before my time. I mostly just know him as the guy who was continuing to fight into his 50s in my early days on the beat and uh, in fact fought once at the age of 60. Uh, Kieran, did you follow Saul Mambi's career at all and thus do, do you have anything to add? Um, like you, I wasn't covering boxing at all during Mambi's time, but um, that's why it was interesting to me. I heard enough about him when I was younger. He was enough a part of the landscape when I was both a young fan and then a somewhat less young fan that without having known a great deal about him, I assumed he was much younger than 72. I actually really hadn't appreciated that he was like 42 when he fought Maurice Blocker or 38 when he went the distance with Buddy McGurr. I just hadn't right. appreciated that. He was already in his early 30s when he beat Esteban de Jesus. I mean, bloody hell. Um, hell of a career. A really good fighter, actually. Um, so, yes, uh, rest in peace to him. Um, all right, that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week to look back at Davis Gamboa. And remember, if you want to watch the fights live and you don't yet have Showtime, you can start a 30-day free trial. Just go to showtime.com slash try 30 
and enter the code SHOWBOX. Uh, next week will be our final podcast of 2019. So in addition to that post-fight analysis, you'll get all the year-end awards and decade-end awards that you can handle and possibly even more than you can handle. Until then, thank you for listening.